0: Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum podcast. Chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Scott Buckler.
1: Morning, everybody, and welcome to the Precision Medicine Forum special dedicated podcast to the anniversary uh, 10 years of genomics england late 2012 the then former prime minister david cameron um, announced uh, investment of funding towards a 100,000 genomes project um the target was established um and the team was set up and we now found ourselves 10 years later in a position where genomics in England and across Europe and the world has flourished and I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Wigley who is the CEO of Genomics England and he's joined me today to talk a little bit about that success to date some of the challenges and opportunities that have come along but also the future for genomics and genomic sequencing so Welcome along, Chris.
0: Thanks very much, Scott. It's great to be here. And yeah, 10, ten years uh, has flown by in the world of genomics, I think.
1: It has, it has. Now, you you joined Genomics England um, in 2019, is that right?
0: Yes, exactly, in uh, late 2019, just before the pandemic.
1: Tell us a little bit about where you come from before that. You worked, you worked in artificial intelligence,
0: is that right, before you came to join Genomics England? Yeah, I've done a mix of things, actually. So... Um, I sort of joke that I use the word career more as a verb than a noun. Um, so I studied um, computer science and medieval history at university and have been about as decisive as that ever since. Um, so I spent a bit of time at the BBC doing um, analogue to digital transition, shutting down the old broadcast towers, standing up uh, radio player and iPlayer and things. Um, spent seven years as a diplomat for the UK. So it was in Afghanistan, Pakistan and uh, Bosnia, um, then did... Um, almost a decade at McKinsey doing kind of technology strategy um, work. And then the four or five years before coming to uh, Genomics England was at a company called Quantum Black. And um, as, you, as you said, we um, built a range of kind of machine learning applications for clients Um, The team had originally come out of Formula One motor racing and using machine learning to try and optimize uh, car designs. We did a bunch of stuff in kind of aerospace and um, offshore wind and energy transition and things like that, but also about a third of our work was in life sciences around using machine learning to optimize um, drug development, clinical trials, uh, manufacturing, real-world evidence, um, all of those kinds of uh, use cases as well. So when you came in 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 2019, do you recall
1: the actual essence of the the, the initiative starting in late 2012? Did it come across your bow at that time? Or was it something that you were, you obviously learned more about as you, as you got into the role?
0: It had been on my radar, but um, I hadn't been uh, sort of closely involved in the details. And then as I came into Genomics England um, at that point, this was probably about nine months after the 100,000th genome had been sequenced. Um, but of course, that's actually, in many ways, the beginning of the journey mm-hmm. um, rather than the end of the journey. Because um, once we um, have that data, actually, the, the real impact comes from the analysis and interpretation of what's happening uh, with those genomes, the return of the results to the participants. Um, and in in this case, effectively building on that um, massive project, this big sort of moonshot project that Cameron uh, launched ten years ago of the 100,000 uh, genomes project, and turning the capabilities and systems and infrastructure that we developed for that into a sustainable service and uh, within the NHS and a sustainable kind of platform for genomics research across uh, the whole ecosystem.
1: So that was achieved. Within five years, I believe the 100,000 project, I think it was done quite quickly, wasn't it? Or ahead of what they expected. I think it was late 2018, was it, when that was about completed?
0: Exactly, at the level of sequencing, yeah, yeah.
1: From then, as you just said, it was the the platform to to what, what was to come. How important was that 100,000 Genomes project to what you've got now uh, in terms of, of building the base, building the ground to, to what's been achieved since late 2018?
0: Um, it's been absolutely foundational. And I would argue, actually, it's been foundational not just for Genomics England and the NHS and the genomics community in um, England and the UK, but... Um, but actually for genomic research and for uh, genomic driven kind of precision medicine in uh, many countries around the world. And I think it's important to go back to the origins of Genomics England for a couple of reasons. One is that um, the Camerons as a family um, had a, a sick kid, Ivan, who had a, a genetically driven um, condition, Otahara syndrome. And, and like many parents, they got really smart um, not just on Otara syndrome itself, the condition, but on um, genomics, on uh, the, all of the science around that. And so, by the time that the concept of the 100,000 Genomes Project was um, was pitched, um, Cameron, as as a dad, was very you know emotionally involved in that, and as a Prime Minister, um, had a sense of this is something that we could do where. Um, the UK could really build on this extraordinary heritage in this field, from kind of Darwin through Rosalind Franklin, Crick and Watson, Fred Sanger, Celexa, um, you know Oxford Nanopore Technology. It's, it's an extraordinary 150-year uh, program, to some extent, where we where we really have led. And at the time, back in 2012, um, we had we had the sense of what it would look like to have um, a system where we really understood. The relationship between genotype, the things that we can find in our DNA and in the genome and phenotype, how those things present in the body as, um, you know, characteristics we have like height or eye color or whatever, or as um, where glitches are causing uh, disease or, or other problems. Um, but we didn't have the uh, the training data set to, I guess, frame it in, in kind of machine learning terms. Yeah. Um, we didn't have enough genomes linked to enough clinical information to be able to map one to the other kind of reliably. And so that um, that boldness of the 100,000 Genomes Project um, at a time when, depending on who you asked or how many you were ordering, a genome could cost anything from five or 10,000 pounds to 70 or 80,000 pounds, you do the maths and multiply those numbers by a hundred thousand. You say, well, hold on, we haven't got that much funding. (laughs) How on earth is this going to work? And there was a lot of criticism at the time saying this is, this is completely mad. You know, it's never going to work. The the sums don't add up. But of course, actually making that big move was one of the things that actually helped to drive down the cost of sequencing um, and actually doing it in that volume kind of created a whole new operating model for, um, for how to do these things at scale so
1: you've come in in, in 2019 into into this role on the back of um, the foundations that have already been built what was your sort of first initiative where did you have to go from there and and how did you sort of build on that yourself individually as as, as leading as CEO but also uh, recruiting and adapting and sort of building on that success
0: it was an interesting time because I think that the the biggest question when I arrived, um, and this, this may sound dramatic, but <laughs> was, um, you know, why does Genomics England exist now? Um, you know, it was created as a vehicle to deliver the 100,000 Genomes project. Mm-hmm. Um, the sequencing has been done there. A lot of the analytics has been done. The results are being passed back to the, the patients in the NHS. Um, you know, there's an argument that says, great, TN medals all round, it pats on the back, well done. Um, you know, um, that that's that. I think actually the, the big switch was saying Genomics England doesn't exist in order to generate data or kind of stockpile genomes. Um, it exists in order to do two big things, really. One is to work in partnership with the NHS, and it's worth re-underlining that the whole 100,000 Genomes project was delivered hand in glove between Genomics England and the NHS That's to take what had been a series of kind of... Um, Research pilots, effectively, in cancer and rare disease that had had made up the 100,000 Genomes Project and actually convert those into a sustainable clinical service. Um, So today, um, anyone with an undiagnosed uh, rare disease or or indications that they have a, a genetically driven undiagnosed rare disease is eligible for whole genome sequencing as part of their standard of care in the NHS, which is the first kind of health service in the world to, to do that at scale, um, apart from a couple of like individual high end hospitals in the states. Yeah. Also, anyone who ha- um, anyone under twenty five who has cancer, um, or anyone with um, other particular types of cancer like uh, neurological, um, blood cancers, um, or sarcoma, um, are also eligible for whole genome sequencing as as part of routine care, um, which is is really transformational and is very firmly built on the um, the kind of infrastructure and services and pathways in the NHS that were, were created through the 100,000 Genomes Project. So I think that's kind of big thing number one is su- supporting that NHS service with um, informatics, with bioinformatics, with um, analysis and interpretation um, and sort of to, uh, to work in partnership with the NHS on that. Hmm. Um, and the second big thing is that all the data from the 100,000 Genomes Project, all the data from the Genomic Medicine Service, all of the data from other uh, big research programs that we've done like um, the genomic program in, during COVID. Um, all of those data can be de-identified and um, grouped together and, and made available to researchers in um, a trusted research environment to do more research into understanding how genomics affects um, our health, um, into new diagnostics, new therapeutics, and so the healthcare side of what we do feeds into the research side by generating all of the data. And then the research side feeds back into healthcare by generating new evidence for commissioning, um, new insights about um, areas where genomics can help, um, and so on. So the more that we do in healthcare, the better, the better the research asset becomes. The more that we do in research, the smarter the kind of healthcare delivery becomes. So those two things are very kind of intrinsically linked in that sense. This special edition of the Precision Medicine Forum podcast is proudly brought to you by Divisa, the pioneering leader in diagnostic solutions for genetic testing.
1: He touched on earlier uh, at the very beginning about obviously the, the cost of the genomics and obviously doing it in mass actually as a legacy has left it to be more efficient than it would have been uh, done at that but one of the things that they established quite early on um, going back to the, the patient aspect is the participant panel and uh, of people that are involved. How integral has that been to to the progress that's been made by involving those? As you touched on, David Cameron's son um, was a, a kind of a catalyst for him personally, but also a, a, as an example of, of why it was so important. So, what the participant panel explain a little bit more about that and, and what role that's played in in genomics?
0: Absolutely. So, you used the word um, integral there, which I think is the right word. Um, the the participant panel really lies at, 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 at well the participants more broadly and as represented by the participant panel really lie at the heart of what we're doing at Genomics England you know that's why we get out of bed in the morning um, you know those are the people that we work for um, and the idea of the panel is that from all of the participants who took part in the 100,000 Genomes Project or now patients who come through the genomic medicine service or research participants who take part in, um, in other big research programs. So we're, we're gradually evolving it with, with the participants over time, um, are on the panel as representatives of that, those wider communities, um, and represent their interests and really play a kind of two way role on the, to the one hand, they can, um, explain to, to me, to us, um, how participants feel about um, different priorities, um, the interface with, uh, with researchers, um, other topics like that um, they can hold us to account to deliver on um, the commitments that we've uh, we've made and they're, they're um, admirably forthright in doing that, which is great. Um, yeah. and um, they also play a really um, critical role in helping us to um, make sure that the research that's happening on their data, and it's their data, it's not our data, that the researchers who are accessing their data are doing so for the reasons that they intended. So everyone who signs up to uh, a major program like the 100,000 Genomes Program or um, opts into uh, having their data available for for research use if if they're coming through uh, the GMS, um, consents to that. What we were really keen to ensure is that that's not a kind of decision you, you make once, you sign a bit of paper when you're, you know, in the middle of a conversation um, in a kind of clinical context, but that that's actually an ongoing relationship. So every research program, before they get access to the environment and the data, um, goes through a, a group called the, the ARC, the Access Review Committee, which has participant panel members on it. Um, and they get to ask the researchers questions. Um, they have a veto on any research so they can, they can just say a hard no. I, I can't overturn that. No one can overturn that. Um, and so it's not just engagement. Engagement is really important and kind of co-development of, you know, our priorities and so on is really important, but it's actual power. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a hard, yeah. hard edge thing. They, mm-hmm. they can absolutely say no. Um, and that has actually meant that we have a really healthy relationship with, um, our collaborations both with academics but also with um the biotech and uh, pharma sectors um sporadically um we will get criticized by kind of uh, campaigning lawyers or other other groups I, I remember at one point i was um i was still relatively new in gel and was at a, a session at the irish parliament um and someone stood up who's a kind of campaigning lawyer and said you know you should be ashamed of yourselves You're, uh, you know, you're taking the data from these poor people and abusing them and selling it to these, you know, evil pharma companies. Um, And Gillian, the chair of our participant panel, just sort of said, "Let me, let me take this one." She said, "Well, it's actually us who are making the decisions, and it's our data. So either you're telling us that we don't understand what we're doing, or, or you're telling us that we're making the wrong decisions about our data." But let's be clear, it's, it's our data and it's us who are making the decisions. So it's not clear to me what the problem is. And the guy was just like, oh, uh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <I didn't know." laughs>
1: he was probably thinking it's a conventional stereotype, wasn't it? Uh, which it isn't. Um,
0: but I think that that gives um, it gives a really positive model for collaborations between kind of government, the health service, academics and um, the life sciences uh, industry in, in a way that it can become very charged um, that about this you know, you're quote unquote selling NHS data um, is you know, one accusation. Another accusation is these big pharma companies come in and if they're not charged for it, develop these expensive drugs and then charge the NHS tons of money. And that's unfair because there's no exchange of value. And so having a having an exchange of value where the pharma companies are contributing to like the running costs of the data sets and so on and but which is mediated by the participants themselves I think kind of breaks that Gordian knot of how do we do these kinds of uh, industry collaborations in a in a kind of transparent and, and ethical and fair way.
1: And that brings us to another point you, you talked about industry collaborations yourself coming from uh, industry um, and being involved in industry before and, I, and I'm sure those in partisan panel members have either worked in the private sector or been involved in industry there's been that collaboration um, is a key component to any successful thing whether it's uh, as you say academia research and uh, the role of the patient but also the role of industry how, how valuable is, has that been to the success in terms of utilizing some of the solutions that are available and being able to to deliver you know quality um, equipment and systems to, to deliver results has that been a big part of the achievements
0: Absolutely, it's funny. I think there is something of an instinct in the ecosystem, or at least there are there are people who hold very strong views that everything should be developed in-house. Yeah, I did a succumbent um, into the NHS during COVID um, on the on the data side, which was very full on. And someone said to me at the beginning, and they were joking, they said, you've just got to watch out for the the beach conversation. And I said, "What? what's the beach conversation? And they said, oh, well, at some point, someone will say to you, why are we giving all this money to these Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturers? You know, we've got perfectly good beaches in this country, like we should be making these chips ourselves. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, they were joking, but there is kind of a grain of truth in that in terms of this Anxiety, or sometimes kind of queasiness, about why are the private sector involved in this in this space at all? Mm. Um, Mm. And I think that it's worth um, noting that without the private sector partnerships that 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 we and the NHS have, none of this would be possible. So, at the at the core of the um, sequencing work for the hundred thousand genomes program, and now for the um, genomic medicine services, the partnership with uh, Illumina, um, the sequencing company. Um, who we have a we have a really good and long-standing um, partnership with. We also partner with um, Oxford Nanopore Technologies, um, you know, a, a sort of British uh, champion in that space uh, for long-read sequencing. Um, and on th- in areas like uh, interpretation, we have partnerships with uh, British companies like uh, Congenica, which was a spin-out from the Sanger Centre, right. um, and also with um, Lifebit, which is a, a UK-based um, startup in the kind of uh, research environment and bioinformatics uh, platform space. Um, and it's through those kinds of innovation partnerships that we can benefit from the the scale and the innovation and the investment um, of the private sector while kind of harnessing those tools to work on programs that are unequivocally delivering, um, you know, a public good and benefits for patients. So I think that's... Um, I think that's great, and it and it comes back to how the participants kind of empower that because you know there's lots of different individuals and communities in our great diverse country, and we should we should come back to that in a second. Um, one really simple split that I've observed, which is is almost so so kind of facile as to be silly, but there's a really big difference I found between healthy people and sick people um, in terms of how they think about data and how they think about things like collaboration with the um, private sector. I think it's quite easy if you're healthy and you haven't got a sick kid or you haven't got a sickness yourself to get quite theoretical about this and say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's my data. Why should the private sector be involved? Aren't they going to, you know, there's a risk that they might misuse my data and so on, all of which is true. But then if your kid is sick or you're sick and it's a rare disease, and there's currently no treatment for it. Let's say your kid has Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which lots of our participants um, have. That just turns on a dime, and you're saying, "Why are you not doing more with my data? Why are you mm-hmm. not um, accelerating the discoveries of of the therapeutics, the diagnostics that you know that we so desperately need to um, sustain or improve the quality of life of these, you know, really uh, large groups of people who who have these." diseases for which there are no treatments. Um, and, you know, new diagnostics and new uh, medicines don't come out of academia, they yeah. don't come out of government, they don't come out of the NHS, they come out of the biotech and pharma world. So we have to find the right way to set up those partnerships and collaborations. It's not about, oh, well, let's let's just do this in-house or let's just do this with academia. That, is, that doesn't work. But we need So we need to collaborate with biotech and pharma, and therefore we need to find the right ways to do that. But it's not about saying, uh, we don't need to collaborate, like we we do.
1: And that's what's interesting because you you kind of preach into the the converted here. My nephew's got jager's syndrome, right? Um, and they've had genomics sequencing uh, done. They've been privileged to have that support, right? To look into it for his sister, my niece, and and for my children, yeah. Just to look at the hereditary line which stems from my my brother. So we've actually been involved in how that works and seen that. And my brother has been benefited from his his son being able to access that. So I've had first-hand experience, you see. So I suppose I'm privileged, in a sense, to to understand a little bit more about it, but understand the emotional side of things and how it affects you. Completely. And the importance. And I, I totally agree with that sentiment of when you're in that position, then that goes out of the window, so to speak, in the sense that you need to be able to explore what options are there yeah. and and that kind of um, not so much paranoia but skepticism about the the whole use of data and some of the stuff that you read about sort of dis- disappears really in a lot of ways. so i um I can I can empathize with that. That brings me to actually one of the more recent um, programs that you've established, which is the the newborn Genome Program. Which you know is, is a is a revelation in terms of the the possibilities that that will bring to to parents and to, to young uh, young children. Tell us a little bit more about uh, how that is um, being established and, uh, and a little bit more of the progress with with that program.
0: I might take one step back and just talk about one other um, program we're doing, and then how newborns kind of to some extent builds on that. So we um, there's this long standing. Um, issue with genomic research that a lot of the large data sets that the researchers access to do their work are based on um, principally people of um, European ancestral uh, background. Um, So depending on which way you slice and dice it, kind of 80 to 90 percent of um, genome-wide association studies um, or of uh, papers, research papers that are talking about genomics, are based on um cohorts of, of european ancestry which is as precision medicine and and genomics come into the mainstream is is not good enough because we need to make sure that the data the data sets that are tra- you know that are being deployed in practice um are tra- reflect the populations that they serve
1: more diverse
0: yeah. yeah so there were those there were those well um well-known uh Concerns about, for example, facial recognition algorithms back in the world of sort of machine learning and AI, that because they'd been trained on a bunch of photos of white men, were really good at recognizing white men and we're not as good at recognizing women, not as good as uh, at recognizing people of color and so on. And likewise, the Chinese algorithms, which had been had been trained on Chinese uh, data sets, were great at recognizing Chinese people. Much less good at recognizing European people, right? so yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so the point is that the, the data sets have to reflect the the populations that they um, serve. And in England, the UK, we're we're you know blessed with this kind of very rich diversity of um, communities here. And so we've um, we've launched a specific program to engage with communities who've historically been underrepresented in uh, in research datasets to to make sure that kind of everyone is um, is involved and um, and can benefit from this. Um, and to some extent, the newborns program, which you mentioned, is like the way that that becomes sustainable over time in terms of um, making sure that we're representative of, um, of our population. Right. So the goal with uh, newborns is to offer whole genome sequencing to um, 100,000 uh, babies. Well, obviously through talking to the mums um, at um, at the same time as the existing kind of heel prick test. Um, so the existing Hillprick test tests for nine conditions. Um, and um, the proposed uh, list of, uh, of conditions to test for using whole genome sequencing at the same time would add about another 200 250 conditions um, to that list. Wow. Um, and so that's kind of the first aim of the program is um, alongside the Hillprick test, which tests for nine. We'd also test for these other 250 conditions. In order to get onto that list, a condition has to be um, driven by the genetics, so kind of highly penetrant in in those terms, Um, has to affect a kid before they're about five, um, and it has to be treatable. um, So we need to be able to do something with that information. We don't want to look for and, and then share information with parents about stuff that there is no um, there's no action you can take because that just generates anxiety without um, without uh, sort of useful uh, next steps, yeah. and so so that's kind of um, aim one, and the, and the goal is to see is that practical um, you know in in the real world to do this in in maternity wards with um, you know the um, the maternity communities. Um, are, are mums up for this? Um, you know, do they do they want to do it? We've we've done lots of public engagement and public dialogue so far that would say about three quarters of people say um, that they think this is great. You know, this is a great idea. They would they would want to opt into that. Does that play out? You know, in the real world is one of the big questions. We've spent a lot of time exploring and kind of co-developing um, approaches to the ethics around this with uh, with professional ethicists, with with mums, with new parents, with um, with other communities. Are we comfortable, you know, as as these questions get played out in the real world? Do um, do people feel comfortable with where we've landed on some of those questions? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of aim one is around screening, and um, there's a, there's also a sort of health economics question there, right? Does the does the cost of the whole genome sequencing test kind of work out in terms of the benefits um, to those uh, to those babies? Fine. Um, the second um, the second big aim of the program though is. Um, there are lots of genetically driven conditions which are treatable, and so would be on the list of things that we look for. There's obviously also a ton of genetically condition, genetically driven conditions which affect kids in early life, which are not treatable currently. We don't have uh, the uh, the medicines for them. And so the the second aim is really a research aim to collaborate with um, groups working on uh, treatments uh, that currently. The, currently don't have medicines, so that over time you can hope to add to that that list of conditions that we can both both look for and treat. And then the third aim of the program is really um, much more exploratory, which is this will be the first large cohort of humans who've been born in human history with their genome on file. Um, And what does that mean as they grow up, um, as they Go into sort of um, you know if they're seven eight nine and suddenly present in intensive care with um, a condition does it help to have the genome on file be able to refer to that get them better treatment uh, faster Um, into teenage years things like hereditary diabetes mental health um, obesity does does understanding um, someone's genome allow us to make uh, more targeted better interventions earlier so for example on um, obesity. A lot of social science research would say interventions before 18 um, can be quite effective. Interventions after 18 are much less likely to be effective. Um, so how, how could we use this to help target the right kind of support to, um, to the people who need it most uh, earlier? And then through into middle age, um, you know, cardiovascular cancer, later years, kind of neurodegenerative. Um, so in that sense, it's really like a hundred year project of... How how does this play out over the lifespan of of this group of people, which is, I think, incredibly, incredibly exciting um, to be right at the kind of, uh, you know, beginning of. You
1: touched on something there on the ethics. Mm. The morals around genomes and genome sequencing is obviously not to say controversial, but it's obviously up for discussion. You've got a participant panel, and you've got members on that participant panel, such as Gillian and others who've who've been through that with siblings or, or sons, uh, daughters, etc. So their their understanding of it. Do you think it morally for yourself presents a barrier going forward in terms of further development? For instance, you made an example there—the usual. Heal pinprick of nine mm. the possibility of going to somewhere in the 200 region is you know it's astonishing really for nine given the the common diseases and infections that we now find ourselves globally um uh, dealing with from nine seems minuscule to to, to 250 it's, it's staggering but do you deal with the moral aspects of it quite regularly? Do you face that barrier? Not just from politicians, and you give an example of the the Irish um, ministerial uh, discussion you're involved in, but do you find that morally becomes a barrier? Or are you actually finding as you've evolved in these 10 years, it becomes something that's less of an issue than it once was? And has COVID affected that? And I, I, I say that because has the global pandemic actually made people think we need to have a preventative system in place?
0: That's a big question. <laughs> yeah,
1: sorry, it to, is.
0: No, no, no. It's, there's no no need to apologise, but it's um, it's it is something we think about a lot. So we have um, an ethics advisory committee um, as part of the board of Genomics England. Um, which is chaired by Nicola Perrin, who's, um, who's superb. We have a director of ethics who works full-time in an executive role um, at Genomics England, who's um, Natalie Banner, who previously ran Understanding Patient Data at uh, Wellcome. Um, we have a whole ethics team um, around her. Um, and to, to stick with the newborns example for a second, um, Rebecca Middleton, who's the, um, the kind of vice chair of the participant panel, along with uh, Gillian, is uh, leading the advisory group for the uh, for the newborns program. Um, the, the ethics are really interesting and complex, um, and I think they can be but don't necessarily need to be controversial. Um, I think at the heart of this, there are some really simple principles which help guide us, like or everything should be based on um, the choice of the um, of the the individuals and families um, involved, yeah. um, nothing should be compulsory. Nothing should be um, forced on anyone. Um, that those choices might change over time, and we need to be able to reflect that by, for example, removing people's data from the data sets. Um, the, the The benefit of patients has to be at, at the heart of this, um, and we need to have clear scope around. Um, what kind of research we're doing? What kind of questions we're asking and answering? So, for example, all of the participants whose data sits in the Genomics England research environment have consented for their data to be used for healthcare research. Mm-hmm. Um, they have not consented for their data to be used by financial services or, um, you know, insurance, right? And so, you know, there is none of that research going on. So, there are really important questions about agency. And, and sort of empowerment of the people whose data it is. There are really important po- points about um, privacy and protecting, um, not sharing those data sets inappropriately, which is why all the data sits in a research environment and the researchers have to come to it. They can't take the data away. We, we talk about this kind of um, aquarium model where you can come and study the fish. You can't take the fish away with you. You know, it's not a fish shop. It's, it's an aquarium. Um, there are also really important ethical questions about safety and Benefits. So obviously it's a pretty core ethical principle that any medicine services that we offer using genomic insights have to be safe. Um, you know, that's that's one of the foundational principles of medicine. Um, at the same time, we need to be innovating because the science is moving so fast. The technology is moving so fast. The kind of clinical practice is moving so fast. Um, and so it's just as we have, you know, established methods around things like clinical trials, um, for, um, you know, randomization and, um, it, you know, running those trials in a way that we can generate the right evidence while bringing the benefit to patients as, as quickly as we can. Um, we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of the ethical imperative to use these new technologies to treat patients who otherwise might suffer. And so it's a, the reason it's an, a really, um, you know, multifaceted set of questions is there are, there are often tensions pulling us in different ways and so you know our job listening to participants listening to groups like the ethics advisory council is to try and resolve those uh, resolve those potential tensions in a way that means that we can move forward yeah in a way that we can feel confident about and um and uh in a way that's completely transparent
1: just quickly going back to that with with the newborn program then will you be and this may be something that's already been addressed, but a, a newborn uh, involved in, in in this program at, at six months, nine months, whatever it may be, when that newborn's sixteen, eighteen, will they be? What will happen then? Because the parents making that decision, rightly so, that, you know, yeah. from from that capacity will you be, will they be presented with the opportunity to to relook at that or or is that something that's still open to discussion
0: no absolutely they'll um we'll be re-engaging kind of teenage years i mean well ho- i'm hoping that we remain engaged kind of on an ongoing basis yeah. so that it's not like you don't hear from us for 15 years and then suddenly it's like oh hey remember us you know <laughs> you, you, you your parents signed signed you up to this program 15 years ago it should be more of an ongoing conversation than that um, so there's this concept called gillick competency, which is at what point do you, as an individual human being, uh, kind of have the knowledge and experience to make kind of good decisions about your own healthcare? Um, and that's not just for genomics; it's for, for healthcare more broadly. Like, should, should you consent yourself for an operation, or should your parents consent you, and so on? Which is typ- typically around 16. It can be um, it can be earlier. It can be later. If people are going to continue for the next kind of for the rest of their lives beyond that point where they're making choices about uh, their own lives that's their choice it's not their parents choice um and so we've been talking only semi-jokingly about things like we need to have a genomics in a tiktok account or you know whatever's whatever's cool in 15 years from now who knows yeah, so yeah, that we're yeah, going yeah. to those teenagers we're not expecting them to come to us you know but we we need to be proactively engaging with them
1: but rightly so though because life sciences is exciting i mean i'm speaking you to you today, and I've got a little bit of an understanding of it from my my own work, but also from what my nephew suffered with. But it is exciting, yeah. and, and the boundaries are, are endless. Really, you know, you've just talked about the conventional um, uh, heel nine thing, which I recall happening on my two daughters, who are now fifteen and thirteen. And I think, what if that possibility is endless to to resolve some of them things is is mind blowing for a parent. And I know you're a father of three. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, so the, the the emotions that are related to that are, are something that are quite overwhelming. So I think there's a right that 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 is um, established and this Gen Z as I don't like the label, but I, I, you know, creating more people in life science is, is a fantastic thing, especially in this country. Yeah. So I think there's a role to be played there by Genomics England that actually is quite interesting, and and I, I use <laughs> I use the term sexy, but something that's a little bit more. You know, um, in your face, but I, I really I want to sort of bring bring the 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 interview and the chat to an end. Which, uh, to be honest, we we could we could speak all day because there's so much to go over. And it's always a pleasure to to speak to you, and you've spoken with us in the past. But what I wanted to to kind of end it on was really Chris is to we've reached 10 years in uh, anniversary of, of when this all came. How do you foresee as CEO um, this next 10 years? evolving and what do you believe is the the biggest aim uh, that you want to set yourself as a goal for this next 10 years?
0: Well it's there's that great Yogi Berra quote of um, it's always difficult to make predictions especially about the future right (laughs) yeah um, Yeah. I think if we looked back 10 years to 2012 when the 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 sort of bold and maybe slightly crazy announcement um, came out I don't think any of us could have predicted where we would be now in terms of this being something that's part of standard of care, that, you know, all of the different advances that have, have come in the last 10 years. And that that pace of acceleration, I think, is only um, increasing. And so I do think that we will be surprised again by what happens in the next 10 years. But I think some themes that I would draw out, one is um, genomics is kind of only the beginning. So when I when I arrived at Genomics England, one of the, one of the early conversations I had was actually the name "Genomics England" is terrible, um, because the word "genomics" suggests that we only care about DNA, and the word "England" suggests we only care about England. Whereas actually, we care about a lot more than DNA, and we care a lot more care about a lot more than England. Um, and on the, on that theme, you know, we're already incorporating um, transcriptomics, proteomics, high definition pathology, and radiology imaging. Um, into the analyses that we're doing to try and bring the best insights to uh, to patients. Um, Metabolomics—it's coming, you know, rapidly down the line. Um, there's just more and more and more uh, tools and technologies out there that give us more and more and more insights about um, the human body, about disease, about wellness. So I think that um, kind of Cambrian explosion of um, let's say different types of microscope microscopes like metaphorically speaking that can teach us different things about the human body is just going to continue um and all of the work that's happening at a single cell level of understanding um the the incredible kind of galactic complexity and richness of what's happening just within each of the individual cells in our body is kind of mind-blowing um so that that um figuring out how to synthesize and kind of deploy what can be an overwhelming Amount of information, I think, is one of the big themes. How how do we draw that together? One of the analogies I like to use it's maybe a bit flippant is the um, the sorting hat in Harry Potter, right? That um, you know the kid puts on the hat and the hat announces, you know, what's in that case what uh, house they're going to go to in that school. Um, I think we need kind of the sorting hat for precision medicine, right? Which is okay. We've there's all this information that can sit in the background, but what the patient um needs to know and what the doctor who's treating them needs to know is what should we do and so i think part of the the job of organizations like genomics england and the um you know the genomics teams in the nhs and uh, researchers and so on is to say how do we process this complexity and present simplicity that people can trust and take action on so i think that that's a big theme um, for the next ten years, and I'd probably just pick out one more. I mean, there's lots we could talk about, but the the other big theme I would pick out is this move from retrospective to prospective, from disease treating to um, more preventative and and um, you know predictive and preventative, which is one of those things that you know we've been talking about for for years. But I think we're we're at a we're at a point now where, particularly with programs like the newborns, um, this is really starting to hit reality. Um, and I think there's there's a, again, sorry, this is like a cheap analogy, but I I use Spotify the whole time. I listen to a lot of music. Um, and every week I get this suggested playlist from Spotify called Discover Weekly. And that's based on my listening preferences and so on. And every week I think, God, there's these songs I've never listened to before. They're great. Um, and I think there's on a much grander scale, there is that kind of, um, relationship that's available for us to kind of frame, which is as a, Um, as a citizen of England, the UK, if you decide to trust the NHS, Genomics England, other organisations with data about you, not just about the music you're listening to, but about your your genome, your healthcare, your your clinical data, um, we can collectively come back, trying to simplify the complexity, with recommendations for you about your wellness, about your healthcare, about... Um, Whether you should be screened early for particular conditions, whether you should actually just when you're 30, go on to statins, even if you're not showing any symptoms of heart disease, just because you're you're very high risk. And I think that's an amazing offer for us as a society to be able to give to people to say, guess what, as a citizen of this country, you're eligible for a free lifelong subscription to these insights about your health. You know, just um, that's um, that's kind of how we roll I don't think we'll be quite there in 10 years but I think programs like Newborns and you know all of uh, tons of other research programs that are going on places like UK Biobank or Future Health um, start to open up that moving from something conceptual to something real I think at a time scale that might surprise us all I
1: think you're right Chris and I think that's a fantastic way to finish the interview um, once again thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure um, and um, good luck with everything in, in the future and here's to another 10 years or more of success absolutely History, another 10 years.
0: That was Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.